Really? You're going to do this here? Today, <laughs> on our 20th episode, uh, I brought you cake and a pile of gifts. I've eaten the cake now. What have you done for me lately? Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf, and slap and tickle over here is Daniel. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry. After the last episode where you told me that that phrase revolted you, I had to. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what's a kind of American version of that. The funny one would have been Intercourse Pennsylvania over here as Abby. Right. As usual, I have to do all the heavy lifting. I thought it it happened to take something a bit weirder than... (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, on that dynamic start, he's Daniel, I'm Abby. Welcome to our podcast. 20th episode it is our 20 about to say i was just gonna say this is going great so far (laughs) uh in terms of announcements i recently did a school visit for the podcast did you i don't know why you weren't there i thought i was there oh how embarrassing for you i don't remember make much of an impression clearly well, regardless, the students and I connected at a school visit, so if there are any secondary school teachers out there in the greater Birmingham, UK area, and you would like me and Daniel, if you know you want him to tag along, to come do lectures or sort of outreach talks to your students, we can do that. We talked about Orlando, didn't we? Oh, you, so now you are, <laughs> including me and the... There's even, finally, a picture of us together somewhere on the internet. Yes. I look great. You're there too. Yeah, thank you. I thought I had a pretty cool shirt on. But, uh, <laughs> I didn't make much of an impression. I end the shirt and everything. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. If any teachers want any more outreach work, I do have an iron shirt. Do we have any letters today, Daniel? We have a repeat offender here. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> our good friend, AM, the anonymous AM. Dear Abby and Daniel, AM starts, thank you for reading my message on the show. It made me smile. I am not a celebrity, and I am certainly not friends with Tyra Banks. (laughs) That's my favorite line. What did Tyra do to you? Yeah, bad blood, I think. I don't know what's going on there, but whatever. But I did once run into that Richard Grant man in London (laughs) in the 90s. And if memory serves, he held the door open for me. If we run into each other again and a friendship blooms, I will recommend your show. He strikes me as the type who would appreciate it. Richard E. Grant, if you ever want to come on this show, please let us know. No, uh, and I'll tell you for why. I once, as a child, saw a bit of how to get ahead in advertising. That would mess you up for life. Yeah, and lo and behold, yours truly. So we could not have this podcast without Richard E. Grant, is what you're telling me, because you would be fundamentally different. Yeah, I suppose he kind of actually, uh... Formative. He seems like the type who would appreciate it. One can always tell these things. <laughs> and now AM says, I did think of a suggestion. A Pilgrim's Progress? I believe it is very tedious. That's And you're the only two who might be able to inject a bit of fun into it. 
Oh, Am, you're probably the person who's going to make me read this godforsaken like book. I think, yeah. And finally, a bit mm. more, a uh, bit more complimentary stuff. I'll just, I'll paraphrase here because it's, uh, it's making us blush. Abby has a good laugh. One that is definitely an ego booster for Daniel. Am suspects. <laughs> You know, I, I'm happy, as long as I laugh at my jokes, I'm happy AM. But, it's, yeah, it's nice when other people do, so that's that's good that you're entertained by that. So, yeah, that's, that's lovely. Another another lovely letter from AM. So, now, we have an update on our corporate-mandated friendship exercise. So, at the beginning of this season, I revealed that Daniel and I do not like each other in real life. Corporate wants us to sort of keep the mystery alive, so they've been forcing us to do these little exercises to make us friends. So this week, they realize that there is no greater bond than that between a girl and her horse. So we we put a little saddle on Daniel. I rode him around like a pony. And I did not appreciate your attempt to Bonnie Butler me. I don't know what that means. Gone with the wind, little girl who dies from falling off a horse. All right. Or like um, the kid in Barry Lyndon. Exactly. Thankfully, you weren't going that fast. No. So Daniel... What is our text today? We're reading a historical novel, and we're back in front of the podcast, the 1890s. Telegraph, bicycle, steamboats, industrial palm oil production. They're all prizing their way into every corner of the globe. Commerce, war, religion, Europe, it's eaten the whole world up. What difference does that make to the good folks of Eboland? You know, compounds need building, clan titles, they need to be earned. And there's a hell of a load of yams that need to be harvested. Well, we'll find out how it relates to the, <laughs> the good people of Eboland with uh, today's text. Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. Written in, I never say the day, do I? Written in... 1956? The year of our Lord, 1958. So close. Yeah, I think of Suez. So it goes without saying, we are about to spoil this text for you. The trigger warnings are colonialism, suicide, decapitations, infanticide, domestic violence, and, Daniel's note here, like the god of small things, we've got some more non-linear narrative. Would you like to do some background, please? <laughs> yes. Uh, do you want me to say I'm going to say no, that again. I like that. That was funny. Achibi. A 20th century Nigerian novelist, poet, and academic. He worked in Africa and America. He died in 2013. He was an Igbo, one of the kind of various kind of ethnic groups of Nigeria. And the novel's about Igbo, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Set in southern Nigeria on the eve of British colonization. This is actually... Um slightly I don't want to say spoiling it but when the when the text opens we don't know where we sort of are on the map we don't even know when we are yeah. in the text so we're we're a little bit pinpointing it because it's in the very last line of the book that we even find out where exactly this is yeah. so if you don't know who the Igbo are and where they live it's not going to mean anything to you no yeah the center of their world is their world yes not, exactly not, despite the impression that my set the scene gave it's not it's not the global metropole a chibi he was a big defender of using English as a writing, you know, as a language for writing in African literature, because you could disseminate African culture more widely um, and also subvert the language of empire. But there are other people in kind of broad swathes of African literature that thought very differently. The Kenyan author Nugugiwa Thiongo. He was like, no, nah, don't do that. Stick to your own language. Screw, screw the English. You know? Yeah, he his basic premise was that 
writing in English when you are sort of an, an African thinker or a thinker from somewhere else, uh, that's just yet another example of colonialism. So his big thing is like, this is the last time I'm going to be writing in English. After that, if people want to access my works, they can access them through a translator. But like, me and my voice are going to be more sort of authentically African and not sort of pander to empire. Yeah. So there's a lot of different schools of thought on colonies and what language they should be writing in, and I, I can see points for either side. Yeah, yeah, they both make sense. Achibi is also very famous for that 1975 essay, An Image of Africa. It's on every kind of introduction to post-colonial um, literary criticism, isn't it? It's the one where he attacks Joseph Comrade's 1899 novel, Heart of Darkness. We've talked about covering that on the show, in fact, and we thought about covering it before this text because he basically said that... What was it, that Conrad was a... Bloody racist. A bl yeah, a bloody racist, and that he wrote this book as a direct response to Heart of Darkness. Because this immerses us completely in the world of the colonized Africans, doesn't it? Whereas Achibi says that although Comrade is clearly an anti-imperialist... There are no black perspectives in Yeah, he in portrays... That. And all the black characters in it are very, like, sort of otherworldly and don't really have a voice. And, or animalistic yeah, yeah, exactly. or, you know, yeah. yeah. So it's... I can see it as both an anti-imperialist book and a racist book. Yeah, those two... one of those weird things about Heart of Darkness. So, the title of the book comes from W.B. Yeats's The Second Coming. And he starts with an epigraph from the poem, doesn't he? Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing for us, I think. Yeah, I think we need a foreshadowing horn in this. That's a, that's a hell of a way to start a book. Yeah, it is. I'm interested in why he chose Yeats's poem. We'll talk about that in the analysis bit, but it just I think that's an interesting choice. So, as I was saying in the background bit, the text opens in a sort of unsure time, in an unsure location. It's a village somewhere in Africa, centered around a tribe called the Igbo. What year is it? Who knows? Our protagonist is Okonkwo, who is famous for his physical prowess. He's huge. He's intimidating. He's sexy. A thick boy with anger management problems. Quote, he had a slight stammer, and whenever he was angry and could not get his words out quickly enough, he would use his fists. Okonkwo's also got some daddy issues. Quote, he had no patience with unsuccessful men, and he had no patience with his father. So his father, Unoka, was kind of a good time boy. He was a debtor, a flute player, a modern-day Falstaff, a knave without malice. And Unoka died a debtor much to the shame of his hard-working son, and he also died an Agbala, which is a derogatory word that means both a man who has taken no title of honor in the village, and it also means a woman. So, hey yeah. <laughs> nice patriarchy you got there. Shame <laughs> if somebody were to smash it. <laughs> Thankfully, though, Okonkwo is full of promise. So at 18, he even beat Amalinzi the cat at wrestling, which is apparently a big deal. And now, you know, Okonkwo... He's a guy, not a cat. That's just his nickname. Right, so now Okonkwo, he's, he's a grown-ass man. He's got muscles for days, two barns full of yams, and three wives. Three whole wives! Three women giving out all this! I made a little hand gesture. Yeah. Nag, nag, nag. <laughs> With this bit, don't we? Among the Igbo, the art of conversation is regarded very highly, and proverbs are the palm oil with which words are eaten. There's a kind of little proverb yourself about proverbs and palm oil. But a conqueror's success is framed as a proverb, isn't it? 
If a child washed his hands, he could eat with the kings. Oconquo had clearly washed his hands, and so he ate with kings. You know, the guys made it. Um, <laughs> you love, you love the proverbs. I love the proverbs. We're going to have a ding after every proverb. That's my That's promise from me to you. One day, a woman from the clan, Oconquo's clan, that is, Umuofia, she gets murdered by some people from a neighboring clan, and there's nearly a war. The clan is known for being good at war and has lots of powerful magic and stuff. So they send Oconquo off to negotiate with him. And he's like, it's either war or send us a girl to replace the woman that got killed. <laughs> and a boy, just, you know, as extra punishment. So the other tribe, the other clan is like, yeah, sure, you can have this girl and boy. I like how women are totally interchangeable. Like, you murdered this guy's wife. Give us a girl to replace her. Yeah, that's you know, works, yeah. Well, I just exist to clean and be had sex with. That's grammar. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to reuse a joke from a previous episode. This dude should just fuck a Roomba and be done with it. The girl goes to the man whose wife had been murdered. The boy, Ikemefuna, you know, he belongs to the village. He's like Mo Flanders. He belongs to the people of Colchester. <laughs> uh, and Okonkwo, because he's a you know, top bloke, he has to look after Ikemefuna. He's uh, Ikemefuna's guardian until the village decides what to do with him. The war is narrowly averted. Hooray. Well, hostage situation. Yeah. So now we get some backstory about Oconquo's psychological state, because this book was sure written in the 50s when psychoanalysis was real big. The thing is, Oconquo is kind of an asshole, and his wives and kids live in fear of him, especially his eldest son, Nwoye, who, to Okonkwo's horror, is really sweet and gentle. He's like, my son is broken, I need to return him to the sun store. Obviously, Okonkwo's abuse is rooted in his own terror of being anything like his dad, so I'm going to say the thing that I have not said on this podcast in ages, which is, get therapy, sir. Mm. I think we're, we're going to need some sort of psychology sound effect. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. We also learn that Okonkwo's father, the sort of driftless layabout, died a horrible death of some sort of swelling illness, and he was abandoned by the whole village. In the evil forest. In the evil forest, yeah. The place where all the Romans get left <laughs> to die. He basically left Okonkwo no wealth, so he had no start in life. And Okonkwo spent his youth working for this wealthy man with nine wives and 30 kids. Ooh. And that was sort of his masculine ideal so Okonkwo grew up wanting to emulate this dude and Okonkwo's boss told him that here's a little proverb a little bit of a mythology here Anike the bird says that since men have learned to shoot without missing he has learned to fly without perching I don't really know what that means um, and he says I have learned to be stingy with my yams it means that doesn't it okay well yeah. th those two things do not logically follow in to my mind but go on so basically he's saying, like, look, I don't loan out yams to most dudes to get their start in life because they'll never pay me back. But you, Okonkwo, you're a trustworthy guy. You're an all-around good egg. You can tell a ripe corn by its look. Oh, my God. Another there's proverb. so many proverbs. Double proverb. So he gives a bunch of seed yams to Okonkwo. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you guys right now. Yams are really the backbone of this story. Yeah. So Okonkwo gets the loan, and through sheer hard work and a lot of bootstrap pulling up, he managed to become just king shit of fuck mountain he repaid the guy back and now he's just got barns and barns full of yams we get it's a yam sweet potato yes right. I, I think they're technically different things but yes more right, or less much, much, yes, yeah. so after this we get loads of yam husbandry stuff so if, for all of you who like uh, your root vegetables 
if that is a subset of our listenership, you will be delighted by this. Yeah, the tuba section. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Okay. So it turns out wealth here is almost exclusively measured in yams because it's a man's crop. Only men grow this it. This is a yams world. <laughs> yep, keep going. Quote, yam stood for manliness. Daniel, is that a I got that yam in your pocket? <laughs> so we're kind of back in the present after having that little, uh, you know, rags to riches tale. A quote. He is a big braggadocio type, isn't he? He swaggers around and he has no time for less successful men. He calls them women and things like that. I had a prefab joke here based on your wording. Okay. And then you didn't say the thing. You said specifically he is a self-made man. Okay. And I wrote, here's my little prefab. Self-made man. Nope. Okonkwo may well be a self-made man. It's a shame that he only had the asshole mold in his workshop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that, yeah. Daniel, they can't all be winners. No, no, they, no, they can't. Yeah, okay, Okonkwo worked hard, but also he probably had the help of a favourable personal god, or chi. Then again, another proverb. <laughs> when a man says yes, his chi says yes also, i.e. God helps those who help themselves. So, the clan are all like, you're great, you can be a diplomat, etc. You can be the guardian of a Kimifuna. Akimafuna's now been here for three years. He's a bit homesick at first, the boy. What, the, the kidnapped child used it to stop war? From yeah, the happening? war booty boy. And Okonko's not the kindest of guardians. Like, he, he takes care of him, but when, you know, this poor, confused kid, Akimafuna, is really depressed from being, like, ripped from his home and family, and he won't eat, Okonko stands over him with a giant menacing stick until Akimafuna finally eats. Can you find the phallus? Eat softly and hold a big stick. <laughs> Let me just also say that this is probably about the fifth or fourth time in the novel that we have a little kind of episode that ends with Ikemafuna arriving in the village. That There's a kind of lot of different narratives that converge on this moment of Ikemafuna arriving. That's... Well, it's a little bit like a fable itself where they keep repeating. Yeah. I was like, yes, we, we know Ikemafuna came to live in the village for three years. We know that. Oh, oh, you're telling us again. Yeah. So that's a, it's a really interesting little narrative tick he has going on here. Yeah, Akemefuna is a kind of nexus point in the story. Akemefuna ends up getting on really well in Okonkwo's household, and he even comes to be sort of part of the family, and Okonkwo especially thinks that he's a really good influence on Okonkwo's eldest son, the gentle sweetheart, the little nerd Nuoye. And Akemefuna even ends up calling Okonkwo father. God, I hope that doesn't come back in haunting, horrible ways. Like Goodnight Mr. Tom. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Oh, it's really moving. I would not get your hopes up. Okay. Doesn't work out that great. So, Okonkwo, you know, he has Akemifuna there for three years, and Okonkwo starts getting a little too big for his britches, so his whole rags-to-riches Cinderella story made him really proud and haughty. And he even beats one of his wives during the sacred week of peace because she didn't have his lunch ready on time. Oh my god, is he okay? Bear in mind that each of the three wives pre prepares him. <laughs> so he's, still, he's getting his lunch, he's, he's just only not getting all of it. Well, so this turns the village against him as they're afraid he'll bring down a curse from the gods upon them all for him being so disrespectful during this holy week. Uh, so that's a, that's a hubris horn if I've ever heard it. It's that time of year again. <laughs> the feast of the new yam. Comes around earlier yeah, every, every year. year. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the Umuophians 
have a, a big feast. This is what you're into this yeah. book for. Hooray, there's lots of good food in this. Finally, so we've got some good food. Yam fufu. That's apparently some kind of like a frittery, coftery type thing. Yam fufu. Vegetable soup. That's it, but there's a lot of it. Not much variety, but there's a lot of food out there. Akonko, he's on edge. He'd rather be working. So he takes his, he's keen to take his nervous energy out on someone. He sees that somebody has slightly aggressively trimmed a banana tree. They haven't killed it, but he accuses someone of killing it. He turns it, he trumps up the charges. Um, yeah, we need a therapy sound effect here. Yeah. You know, hint, it's not the banana tree. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. Also, yes. find the phallus. She killed my banana tree is what he's afraid of. There's always money in the banana tree. <laughs> it turns out his second wife, Equefi, was the one who trimmed the banana tree, so he gives her a, a beating. Later on, when he's planning on going out hunting, he gets his special gun, and Equefi makes a little kind of dig about how he's famously a poor shot. Mm, a little find the phallus yep. thing too. Yep. <laughs> Just, I mean, come on, if you're going to softball him into me like this. No, yeah, he doesn't appreciate the dig. He tries to shoot Equefi, but... Whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you need to back up. He does what about he his wife's joke? shoots at his wife with the gun, but confirming the dig that she made, he completely misses her. So. Oh, good. Oh, oh, well, just I was worried he was overreacting for it's a second. Just, you know, New Yam Festival is a very fraught time of year. Families, they tend to fight. It's just part of the... It comes with the territory, I think. Oh, uh, this guy likes his crops like he likes his violence. Domestic. Yeah. No, yeah. no, yeah. no. <laughs> Kind of, <laughs> I quite like that one. Wow. Yeah. Next on the schedule is the traditional New Yam Festival wrestling match. <laughs> oh, I love that. The family can all hear the, the kind of drums announcing it floating on the wind. I love all the drum stuff. That's good, isn't it? Do you think there is a like a yam queen riding around on a yam float? Yeah, probably, yeah. Equefi and her daughter Azinma are cooking, and Equefi's really excited to see the young lads wrestle. She, that's how she... First fell for Okonkwo, wasn't it, when she saw him wrestling? Okonkwo is excited as well. Sorry, you about to say something. I was just wondering what type of wrestling is it, because I really hope it's Cornish sort wrestling. Of... Origin of the word stickler. Carry on. Cornish? What? Wait, 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 wait. What yeah. is that? It's a sport. It's a type of wrestling. It's native to Cornwall. Can you demonstrate it for me? No, but there are three judges called sticklers. They have sticks. And and they beat you if you're not no, wrestling enough? No, if they don't... I think you have to like they have to vote if they consider a pin legal and if two or three vote. Please then tell it me you do this whenever I've, you go to Cornwall. I've never done it. I've never even seen it. Aquefi's excited to see the young lads wrestle, so is a conquo. It filled him with fire as it had always done from his youth. He trembled with the desire to conquer and subdue. It was like the desire for woman. So that's something that probably needs unpacking mm. and I don't <laughs> no, thank you. I don't want to yeah. dignify that with a queer reading. <laughs> Two things going on there. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. that's that's not healthy enough to get a queer reading. I will not acknowledge what? it. You can't only have the healthy queer readings. Uh, uh, friend, this is my show. I can do what I want. Okay, well, that's also mine. I can replace you at the drop of a hat. No, you can't. The drums play all day. Soon their sound is no longer a separate thing from the living village. It was like the pulsation of its heart. It throbbed in the air, in the sunshine, and even in the trees, and filled the village with excitement. Everyone's getting real horny and eating yams and watching wrestling. This sounds like every county fair I have ever been to. Yeah, but with marshmallows on the yams. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you know how we do. <laughs> a conquo, he's eaten the, the meal prepared by his first wife. Now he's served Equifi, the second wife's meal, by Azinma, his, uh, her daughter, his and her daughter. She's his, kind of his favorite child uh, because her mum was the hot one. Equifi is the hot one, even though he does repeatedly shoot her and things. So, don't know what's going on It's there. the ones you like the most that infuriate yeah, you the put, most. Put on their pigtails and things. And Zima, it's the only kid that the two of them were able to have, him and his second wife. Like, he has a bunch of other kids with his other wives, but we kind of focus mostly on his middle wife, Equifi, and their one daughter. Yeah. So, once again, we get the repetition that for the last three years, Okonkwo has been taking care of Ikeme Funa, and he's been treating him like a son now that, you know, he's sort of over his initial homesickness. And Okonkwo has been teaching Ikeme Funa, okay, the art of controlling one's women folk. Important for every boy to learn. It's a lesson you have never learned. <laughs> I am thoroughly ungovernable around you. Ikeme Funa is picking up on this like gangbusters, right? Okonkwo's been trying to rope in his other son, his eldest son, Nuoye, and Okonkwo's been warping their minds with sort of violent, manly stories. Nuoye prefers the fables that his mother told him, the gentler stories, but he knows now that he's sort of going through puberty, these are, quote, for foolish women and children. Okonkwo, I want to tell you to leave your son alone before you ruin him, but you can't hear me because you're already over there ruining. Then, soon after this, Okonkwo gets some news. The village has finally decided what they're going to do with Akemi Funa, his adopted son, his beloved boy. The Oracle decreed it's time to kill him. You know, Okonkwo goes to Akemi Funa and's like, you're going to be going home. You're going to go live on a farm, Akemi yeah. Funa. <laughs> Okonkwo, Akemi Funa, and a bunch of the other men from the town, they will head out into the forest armed with their matchets. Uh, I'm gonna stop everything. We never say match it anymore, do we? We say machete. Why are we using some loan word when we've got a perfectly good cognate with in English? I don't know. Okay. Stop, stop Mach- asking me this. Matchets, yeah, if one more person asked me that today. <laughs> so what do they take? They take their matchets and... A pot of wine. Yeah, because God forbid we forget the picnic element of the child murder. They all walk through the bush. Um, I love this bit. It's so quiet that they can hear the drums from a distant clan playing on the wind. That's mm-hmm. kind of quiet atmospheric. Akemafuna thinks about reuniting with his mother and he sings to himself. He also notices that Akonkwo has withdrawn to the rear of the group. Another man raises his matchet to kill Akemafuna, who turns around and notices and runs toward Akonkwo, shouting, my father they have killed me. So it's a little uh, Macbeth reference, isn't it, when they kill Macduff's family? Oh yeah. Akonkwo is afraid of looking weak, so he cuts the boy down dead. Nice. So Kind of uh, hard to riff on this bit. Yep, uh, Just to pretend we said something hilarious here, but, you know, I don't want to go to hell, so... So Okonkwo goes back to the town, and Noye senses that Akemafuna has been killed, and, quote, something seemed to give way inside him, like the snapping of a tightened bow. Ugh, Noye, you're so sensitized. The last time he felt this way was when he was walking home from harvesting yams. By the way, the yam harvest is every child's favourite time of year. And he heard the voice of an infant crying in the thick forest. And then Anoye had heard that twins were put in earthenware pots and thrown away in the forest, but he had never yet come across them. So he's disturbed by the kind of customs of his community. And Okonkwo was there trying to, like, bury his own trauma. In an earthenware pot. (laughs) And he's like, what's a little foster son murder between a father and his other son? Stop crying like a little bee, Nwoye. 
Okonkwo gets sick after this, because he's the real victim here. But eventually, he sees some of his friends to discuss the goings-on, and, you know, they, they're all like, hey, buddy, rough day you've just had. Take a little rip off this palm wine, you'll feel better. He does, because he is a crock of shit human being. So, Okonkwo tells his friends that, quote, the earth cannot punish me for obeying her messenger. A child's fingers are not scalded by a piece of hot yam, which its mother puts into its palm. So a little proverb there, basically like, hey, well, the oracle told us to, so... Don't blame me. Don't, yeah, it's not my fault. It's upstairs. Or the woman... <laughs> but my pay grade, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then we hear that strange things are afoot. In a village nearby, an old man has died, and his ancient wife laid down next to him and willed herself to death. They also talk about how in some parts of the world, women have legal rights to the children instead of the husbands. Okonkwo, he thinks this is crazy nonsense. It's about as likely as the myths about people who have sex in any other way but missionary, or those weird myths about the chalk people, i.e. white folks. Just as Okonkwo is starting to get over Ikemifuna, there's a new problem. His daughter, Ezinma, she's ill. Ezinma is Ekwefi's only child after several stillbirths, and she's kind of indulged. She even gets to eat <laughs> eggs. I kept trying to think of a joke here, but there's nothing funnier than, no. first of all, the face you're making, and secondly, just the... It's serious. I don't think it's funny at all. I think it's serious. <laughs> um, so, Okonkwo and Ekwefi, look after her, nurse about to health. We also have another kind of sort of village scene, a trial. And the trials are run by the Egwugu, that are kind of um, masked spirits of the clan. Okonkwo's wives, and perhaps other women as well, might have noticed that the second Egwugu had the springy walk of Okonkwo. And they might have also noticed that Okonkwo was not among the titled men and elders who sat behind the row of Egwugu. But if they thought these things, they kept them within themselves. The Egwugu with the springy walk was one of the dead fathers of the clan. He looked terrible with a smoked raffia body, a huge wooden face, painted white, except this round hollow eyes and the huge charred teeth, blah blah blah. The point is, it's some kind of like, the spirits of the clan, secretly, it's just the elders, whatever. That's a good bit, I thought. They come in to do their legal system sort of deal yeah, there, they, yeah. they give you know. hand judgement down, yeah. So one night, as everyone is hunkered down in their homes, eating dinner and telling stories and doing whatever you do in the evening, Cielo, a priestess, speaks a prophecy to the whole village. She says Okonkwo's daughter, Azinma, needs to visit the oracle immediately. So Chielo takes Azinma away into the night, and obviously the girl's parents are like, what the hell is happening? So despite them being forbidden from coming with them, Ekwefi, the second wife, follows the two of them through the night as they quest up the mountain to see the oracle. Now, I want to I point out something here. The author makes a point of saying that Equifi, who's hiking through the woods after her daughter, she need, she really needs a sports bra, apparently, and that she has to hold her big boobies flat to her chest while she ran to keep them from being too noisy. <laughs> now, do boobs make a lot of noise? My big boozled listeners, could you please write in and let me know if that's a thing? So anyway... We have this chapter where it's just this absurdly long, intense trek through the darkness at night. The priestess and Azinma disappear into a cave where Equefi can't follow them. So she it's kind the of, Oracle's cave, right? Yes. Yeah. So she sits outside in despair and is relieved eventually by Okonkwo, who has followed them as well. And he's like, honey, go home and get some sleep. 
I will wait for our daughter, you know, and just whatever the fuck is happening inside with the Oracle. This is a rabbit of good parenting from a Conqueror. Yes, it is. And Aquefi remembers, you know, even though, look, okay, he may have tried to shoot her. He may have beat her over a banana tree. She didn't, in fact, kill. Bygones are bygones. He was a hot wrestler once, and he did one nice thing for her. So she remembers why she fell in love with him. So eventually, the priestess returns Azinma to the family's compound, but she doesn't say what the hell is going on, and everyone goes to sleep. Does this ever get resolved? No. We never find out what this was all about. Just tremendous. You know, I've always said that I want books with more nighttime marathons and less resolution. I've always said that. I've said that from the first episode. I think I've said that every episode. The resolution is that Aquafu and Aquanquo have a sort of moment of... Do you think he followed the sound of her flapping boobs? Maybe, yeah. It's like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I just, like, like, uh, like uh, Odysseus and the Sirens. Uh, <laughs> we get a the sexy bit, don't we, where she remembers when they first got together. A conqueror was too poor to marry a Creffy, so she married someone else. But after two years, she couldn't stand it anymore. Left her husband for a conqueror, and she entered his compound, knocked at his door, and he came out. Even in those days, he was not a man of many words. He just carried her into his bed and in the darkness began to feel around her waist for the loose end of her cloth. Ooh! Ooh. That's a saucy bit, isn't it? Next day, there's a wedding in the village. As in Marina Conqueror are knackered, aren't they? There's, we get some kind of more slice of life stuff. There's a goat sacrifice, a cow escapes. It's funny, all the women have to go and chase it. Yeah, so we have this sort of wedding, and it's all, you know, like funny jokes about your in laws being tight fisted and whatever over wine. And this is followed very hard on by the news of a death in the village. So it's real, just circle of life stuff, man. A wedding party turns into a funeral. Doot, doot, brush off your hands. 21 gun salute. The wedding baked yams did coldly furnish the. Were you going to say that? I had a I joke. just came up with it now. Uh, but. That's a reference from our Hamlet episode. And the Beowulf one. So all the men in the village, they, they get out their guns to offer a sort of salute to the dead man. And then tragedy strikes. Okonkwo's gun explodes and accidentally kills the dead man's 16-year-old son. Uh. Boy, read into that what you will. His gun explodes, kills a young boy, you know, accidental. Oh, well, I mean, you know. Happens to the best of us, so I'm told. Um, (laughs) That would have been a much funnier joke coming from you, damn it. Okay, so Okonkwo is guilty of committing a, quote, female murder. So basically, he's accidentally killed somebody. He and his family are banished from the clan. They, you know, basically put up a Polaroid of him like he's at the bodega and he's banished for life. So they have to flee in the middle of the night with whatever they can carry. And in the morning, men from the village come by and they burn all of Okonkwo's wealth and estate to the ground and they slaughter all of the animals. They don't do this out of anger. They do it because the earth goddess commands it so they can purify the tribe again. It's not me. Kill guy in the clan. Sorry, but we're going to have to burn down your house. It's basic (laughs) practice. The idea of these jerks being like, you know, the tribe needs to heal as they put a stick of dynamite <laughs> in a goat. The men feel sadness for the loss of their friend or Conquo, and they do sort of wonder about the justice of all of it, but you can't argue with the gods. Here's a proverb that Daniel Nature had to say quote, If one finger brought oil, it soiled the others. A Conquo and the gang. They arrive in his mother's native village, which he calls his motherland, doesn't he? I like. mm-hmm. um, so it's a different clan as well, isn't it? His maternal uncle, Uchendu, is there to welcome him. Despite all of his efforts, he now has to start from scratch. 
Oh no, my yams. Yeah. Like... A man could not rise beyond the destiny of his chi. The old saying of the elders that if a man said yay, his chi also affirmed it ain't true. A conqueror is a man whose chi said nay despite his own affirmation. So, you know, God doesn't always help those who help themselves. The proverbs are going wrong, that's a bad sign. A Chendu gives a Conquo a bit of a pep talk slash telling off. He's like, come on, get over it. It's only seven years. And remember the local proverb, mother is supreme. You can always rely on your mummy. No, 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 no. Sorry, I got to stop you there, Daniel. That is a whole different branch of therapy. We have not worked through the daddy issues. Yeah, but now we're in the motherland. No. It's all about mummies. No, you are crossing the streams. This poor, confused boy, he's got to tackle the daddy issues. No, he's, no it's about the mummy. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. Just gonna say it again, the proverbs are going wrong. Things are starting to fall apart. It's like, um, Jenga with humans. So two years later, Okonkwo's still in his mother's home village, and some of Okonkwo's friends from his original village come to visit, and they report distressing news. A nearby town is, quote, no more. A white man on an iron horse had come, it took me ages to figure out what they were talking about because they just ding, say ding. they just say iron horse. They mean a bicycle, but they obviously doing a bike noise. I mean, not all bikes have bells. Could you not have made the sound of the pedals and the wheels whirring, please? Not all bikes—that's mental. I'm gonna do the bell. Not all bikes have bells. No, I never had a bell on my bike growing up. If people say what noise does a bike make, you're not gonna be like. You should be like ding ding. You're mental. <laughs> so at first, Okonkwo doesn't understand what they mean with the, this white man. He thinks they're talking about somebody with albinism. His buddies report that the villagers had consulted their oracle about this strange white man on an iron horse. Who seemed to speak through his nose. I like that. Yeah. That's what English sounds like. His buddies say that, oh, this, this village, you know, when the strange white man on an iron horse came they're like what is this what do we do with it so they consulted their oracle and the oracle said that this white man would only bring destruction to them so they decided to kill him come on what? they tied his iron horse to the sacred tree to stop it running away and telling others that is cool so sure enough more white men come and they see the old bicycle of their murdered friend tied to this tree they intuit what happened and they come back on the market day and they gun down the entire village. Just, you know, real hard to riff on this one. Um, I, I got nothing funny to say about genocide. Fortunately, I do. <laughs> do you think that the bike was, they'd like a bike chain to chain to the sacred tree? <laughs> yeah, so they kill everyone. They also talk about the old rumors from, you know, their grandfather's day or their great-grandfather's day of white men taking slaves away across the sea. But they're like, oh, I'm pretty sure these are just ghost stories, or at least we were sure until these white dudes showed up. So I really love this, that white people are presented as sort of the boogeymen in the same way that in Heart of Darkness presents sort of them as like the boogeymen that white people don't understand. Or like how in Germany, um, Swedes are presented as the um, boogeymen. Two more years have passed. Okonkwo's friend visits again, and Okonkwo's rather upset to hear that some missionaries have come to his native clan, Umaofia. They've built a church, and they've even got a few converts, although they're all kind of the losers of the tribe, aren't they? So don't worry about that. The missionaries finally arrive in Mbanta, the, you know, Okonkwo's motherland. Okonkwo hopes that the locals will chase the missionaries out, but they're just kind of like, 
how can how can God have a son but not a wife? They kind of debate the vagaries of the Trinity instead. They're already playing the missionary's game. Conquo's son, Anoe, is uh, captivated by it all. Little traitor. The, all right. The hymn about brothers who I'm, sat in... I'm embodying oh, okay. Oconquo. The hymn about brothers... The hymn about brothers who sat in darkness and fear seemed to answer a vague and persistent question that haunted his young soul. The question of the twins crying in the bush and the question of Ikemefuna who was killed. He felt a re- relief within as the hymn poured into his parched soul. I like that there's a kind of... A bit of nuance here, right, that, okay, I don't want to sound like a mad guy, right, but I know imperialism's bad, but I like that I could see that some people would consider some of the new customs a bit of a relief. Well, I, I mean, this is all about the sort of persistence of storytelling. You know, we have all this bit mm. with the little proverbs and things, and Noyer is very clearly mm. interested in storytelling, so you can see how he's captivated by this. I've got my point here, my sort of Elon Mikeson's wood kind of dialectical point. This is a prefab. Remark, not a joke. It's a serious remark. The great thing about Western civilization is that politics and religion are sufficiently separate for religion to be able to talk about peace and kindness while politics does the dirty work. Whereas for the Igbo, they're still kind of intertwined. So one day the missionaries ask for some more land and the locals give them part of the evil forest. So they're like, uh, oh, oh, you want some land, do you? Okay, suck on this accursed crooked tree, you sons of bitches. <laughs> but the joke's on them because the white missionaries love evil forests and they fucking thrive there. Instead of being killed off by all the dark magic in the evil forest, they clear the land and they build a big church and just like spike a bunch of footballs jubilantly. And the people are like, oh, well, that did not go as planned and so they're they're kind of curious about these white men's strong powerful magic the kind of rubberneck by the evil forest and the christians are like hey sin is bad jesus is good details inside friend <laughs> and because of that they win over some converts and the longer these white missionaries stay without being harmed by the Igbo gods the more converts they win. It starts off pretty slowly, but pretty soon they're just like super soaking the whole village with holy water. Unfortunately, now Daniel, I want you to sit down for this. Sorry, I'm just not doing some star jumps, but I'll (laughs) sit down again. Okay. One of the converts is Okonkwo's son, Nwoye. Nwoye by nature, (laughs) right? So the fact that Okonkwo's son has gone off with, quote, a lot of effeminate men clucking like old hens calls for the development of a new proverb. Okonkwo was popularly known as, quote, the roaring flame, but, quote, living fire begets cold, impotent ash. burn. Or not. Fellas, is it gay to ponder eschatology? I've got something to say. The Christians have a lot of kind of, you know, they intone a lot of little biblicalisms, don't we? In the same wheelhouse as the Igbo proverbs, aren't they? We've got a lot of these kind of like stock phrases that are meant to convey wisdom. You know, they're not that different. I'm sorry. Did you just movie villain the Igbo? We're not so different, you, you and, and I. I. <laughs> the new religion is gaining more adherence, and apparently. You know, shock horror, the white man has also brought his own government. Oh, who could have foreseen that totally predictable thing? Yep, they've built a place of judgment in Umuofia, Okonkwo's home. His town. fatherland, his not his fatherland, motherland. Yeah, and they've already hanged a man who killed a missionary, so... These stories, they all sound a bit like fairy tales in Mbanta, Okonkwo's current residence. The church 
has no problem with twins. Ew. Uh, yeah, I know. And other such abominations. What? So, outcasts start joining. Yeah, the Igbo have outcasts, apparently. Um, what kind of outcasts? They're long-haired people. Ew! They're, they're sort of t- weird taboo people. What it's, nightmare fuckery is this? I people know. with long hair? No, it's not right, is it? Yeah. Do you ever wish you were a twin? Sometimes when I'm in a public place, I wonder if all of the people around me actually have a twin. And I just know that there's no way of me knowing that they have a twin. But imagine that if you were in like a pub or something and everybody there had a twin. Where you leave somebody at the bar and then you go to the urinal and the guy next to you... No, no, they could be somewhere else. You know, because obviously not, people aren't sutured to their twins. I this saw... is not about the confusion. This is just about the thought that you could be in a pub and every person you look at could have a twin and you would never know. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely had a twin that you ate in utero. I just know this about you. I know it in my soul to be true. That's how you get, get your strength. So, they're inviting long-haired taboo people into the church. The church is starting to transgress a few, you know, boundaries within the old order. Next, you know, things get worse. Would you say things fall apart? Uh, somebody hears that a Christian killed a sacred python. Can a python fall apart? Depends. <laughs> uh, the Ebo revere the python. They call it our father and let it do what it likes. Um, can we find the phallus here also? Um, nope. Okay, what do they let it do? They let it go in their bed and eat hen's eggs. At the Why are you storing hen's eggs in your bed? I was going to say, at the same time, because those are not bed food. That's not bed food. Just take a hen's egg to bed. <laughs> <laughs> you were the only person I know who would eat eggs in bed. You wake up in the morning and there's all like egg cups all around. Uh-huh. You're like, what, I, what did I do? Anyway, the snakes are eating hen's eggs. Sound like a menace to me. Sounds like somebody should teach them a lesson. The Ebo don't like it, though. A conqueror in particular is like, first they came from me, then they came from my python. <laughs> or whatever. He gears up for war, but the tribal elders... <laughs> I love this bit. I love the tribal elders. They're like, well, if it did happen, then the blasphemer is in for trouble of his own making. The gods can fight for themselves. We don't need to act on it. The guy that supposedly killed the python falls ill and dies. So the clan are like, oh, the gods can defend themselves. So they kind of just stop worrying about the Christians again. Eventually, seven years later, Okonkwo's exile is over. And he prepares to return to his original village and start a bigger, better yam farm. This is just, this book is as serious as anyone could be about yams. They're They're not funny. Part three, Okonkwo heads back to his fatherland village and he mourns his loss of status. So he says a man's place was not always there waiting for him. As soon as he left, someone else rose and filled it. The clan was like a lizard. If it lost its tail, it soon grew another. So he has plans to regain all of his lost ground. He's going to build a bigger, better McMansion compound than before, a bigger barn, two new wives, and he's going to make sure his five remaining sons aren't shiftless layabouts who spend all their time, like, shooting dice in an alley like Nuoye does or whatever he imagines. I want you all to keep in mind that his youngest son is four, so this is, we're going to, let's just keep these daddy issues coming, shall we, for the next generation. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. Okonkwo says, quote, You have all seen the great abomination of your brother. Now he is no longer my son. I will only have a son who is a man, who will hold his head up among my people. If any one of you prefers to be a woman, 
Let him follow Nuoye now while I am alive so that I can curse him. If you turn against me when I am dead, I will visit you and break your neck. Ooh. I did that speech for an audition once. Did not get the part. <laughs> Okonkwo is also surprised by how ingrained the white colonists have become with all their new laws and rules. So after all of this time away, it's very, you know, new village who dis. <laughs> and Zinma, his daughter with his second wife, meanwhile, has grown up to be a great beauty. So her mom's genes really hit copy-paste. But Okonkwo won't let her marry until they're out of exile. Well, I like that she's called the Crystal of Beauty. First of all, that's a cool nickname, isn't it? That was my nickname through yeah. high school, yeah, I yeah. say lyingly. Also, I like that the reason he wants her to marry when they go back to the old village is to, like, sort of get a good son-in-law, get someone with cachet. Well, yeah, I mean, what are women for except to marry them off to get you more social standing? I got the crystal of beauty here, bitch. More yams, please. <laughs> um... So he says, quote, The white man is very clever. He came quietly and peaceably with his religion. We were amused at his foolishness and allowed him to stay. Now he has won our brothers, and our clan can no longer act like one. He put a knife on the things that held us together, and we have fallen apart. Tidoclaxon. Oh, that's classy. Unlike a conquo. Many of the locals don't think that the white man's all that bad. <laughs> yeah, okay, he brought a lunatic religion. But he also brought a trading post that will pay big bucks for local produce, especially palm oil. People are getting pretty rich. Can we just talk about that Okonkwo is mostly mad that he is back and people are too busy talking about getting rich and not paying attention to him because he is just the Queen Jezebel of attention whores. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, He's like, nobody's thrown me a feast in eight pissing minutes. I've been gone for seven years. So people are getting rich. Some of them don't even really mind the religion. Mr. Brown, the missionary. He's all right. He meets the locals halfway on their customs. He has a little... Go on. Mr. Brown's the first white man to get a name, so in terms of narrative, we can see him being humanized and integrated and even titled with respect. So I think that's important. Names are important. Yes. Yeah, well, because he, he, he has a debate with one of the village elders, Akuna. Akuna's like, well, in the Ibu, we do have a supreme god. He's called Chukwu. He created all the other gods. And Mr. Brown's like, well, here's a, here's a thought. Why don't you get rid of the other gods and just keep Chukwu, but call him the Lord thy God? You know, so the, the two cultures are starting to kind of articulate themselves through each other's eyes. Uh, Mr. Brown opens a school, and some of his alumni go on to be clerks and other minor officials. And Woye, now called Isaac, has gone off to teach a training college. She's doing this PGCA. <laughs> um, a conquer is not happy about this. Uh, fellas, is it gay to have a profession? So Mr. Brune gets sick and has to go back to the UK. Oh no. And he is replaced by a Mr. James Smith. And he's given a first name, not just a last name. So I, I haven't quite worked out why that is, because Mr. James Smith is a real prick. But he's just a real unwavering, fanatical guy. He's sort of a foundling of John Knox, who thinks that Mr. Brown was just too soft and too willing to compromise. So Mr. Brown was all about the sort of the quantity of converts. Mr. Smith, he's all about the quality. Because he like really amps up his game, this produces a lot of zealotry among the converts and leads to a lot of fights and tension. He thought it was bad before, it's real bad now. Eventually, and Daniel's not going to like this quick summary because I zoom over a lot of stuff. Eventually, the, for me. the village is properly divided and the anti-Christian half of it 
burns the church to the ground. No, come on, you can't skip that. One of the converts demasks one of the Egrugru. That's a big deal, right? He pulls the mask off one of the supposed spirits of the clan, and that's what causes them to torch the compound. I mean, I also like to leave little hidden gems for people to mm. engage with. We can't cover everything. Well, there's loads of stuff that we haven't covered. Okay. Well, so that's like quite a, oh, when quite you're a right, bit. you're right. I like the way that Reverend, the Reverend James Smith is like, I have come to slay the prophets of Baal. <laughs> <laughs> there's no explanation of that in the same way that Achebe doesn't bother to explain any of the Igbo stuff. Igbo but stuff. It's, it is slightly alien. That's a nice detail where you could see if you didn't know. Well, I'm not 1000% sure what that is, but like it sounds intense. But what does it mean? Yeah, yeah. Much, much in the way that Okonkwo would be like, Okay. Well, it sound it's got gravitas. I'll give it that. <laughs> but but we're like that when they uh, when the Ebo say stuff. They're like you know Agabala says this, and you're like sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that though. Both cultures are sort of um, rendered strange. Akonko, of course, he had a hand in the hoo ha. He was probably first throwing the torch at the church. And he's like, finally, I'm back in the saddle. Mm, did a little arson, feeling like a man. Arson about. <laughs> um, <laughs> not my joke. The district commissioner sends for him and some of the other kind of clan elders. And they're like, yeah, we'll go to court. Yeah, we can make our case. Your Honor, permission to be masculine as fuck, thank you. I'll allow it. <laughs> um, so they turn up at the courthouse. They're quickly arrested. Uh, Your Honor, the only thing I am guilty of is having boulder-sized cojones, and for that I should be celebrated and rewarded. They're fined 200 bags of cowries for the destruction of the church, and they will be imprisoned until the fine is paid. Sorry, um, measuringworth.com, what is cowries into yams, please and thank you? We'll have to write to them and... <laughs> you didn't look it up? I know they have it, they're very good. I like to leave a few gems, a few hidden mysteries in the text. And the, the court messengers tell the clan about the two, 250 bags of cowries that they've been fined. Yes, the messengers are a little cheeky 50 bags of cowries themselves. Corruption. There's a bit of a whip round in Umuofia to pony up the cash. Okonkwo oh, they, start, they did a Kickstarter. Yes, exactly, yeah. Okonkwo is royally miffed and his family are distraught. Azinma has even come home from her 28-day trial period with her future husband to look after her dear old dad. I think that's... Azema's getting married. Yeah, who knew? Akonkwo lies on his bed and mithers about all of the weak links in the clan. He heads to the town centre and makes a stirring speech calling for war. We have a proverb. It's already been in it. I don't think we said it, but we have it again. Whenever you see a toad jumping in broad daylight, then you know something is after its life. You're all here listening to me. Ergo, our clan is in danger. Yeah, because notorious wallflower Okonkwo never swings his dick around. But he's talking about the rest of the clan, the fact that the clan even came to hear his speech. Their clan all worshipped him. This is BS. They would listen to anything he said from any point in this narrative. Well, Come on. Maybe if they had more people critiquing his rhetorical powers, he wouldn't be able to exert the authority that he does. But... Well, I'm just a humble country yam farmer. <laughs> Court officials turn up and a conquo confronts them. The top official is like, the white man whose power you... No, too well has ordered this meeting to stop. Ooh, old anger management issues. He's starting to see red, and that Kill Bill siren is going off. Akonkwo grabs his matchet, decapitates the guy. Healthy. Yeah. Well, for Akonkwo. <laughs> uh, he's working through some stuff. He's just the other guy. The other officials run off, and the Umuofians, they don't do anything. And Akonkwo's like, well, I've been left high and dry. No war. 
I have all this daddy issues stuff to work through via my matchet. I feel like if I discovered that Ho Chi Minh had daddy issues, I still wouldn't question his anti-imperial struggle. But when you put it like that, I sound like an asshole. Yeah. The next day, the district commissioner and a bunch of armed soldiers show up at Okonkwo's compound, but he's gone. The soldiers ask some local men to take them to where Okonkwo is hiding, and they all stumble around until they find his body hanging from a tree. Mm, I can't think of anything funny to say. This is not a funny book. Okay. One of Okonkwo's friends, who's devastated to discover this, yells at the district commissioner, saying that he drove Okonkwo, one of the village's greatest men, to kill himself like a dog. But the district commissioner, he's not paying attention. He's already too busy thinking about the great book he's about to write, about how he's going to be a rat-ass colonizer, and he thinks Okonkwo's death would make for a great chapter. Maybe not a chapter. <laughs> a paragraph. That, yeah, yeah, that's about right. And he plans on calling the book, quote, The Pacification of the Primitive Tribes of the Lower Niger. The end. Well. That's such a devastating ending, isn't it? Yeah. Hard to put a bow on this one, Daniel. Oh, well, that was great fun. Casting. Was it fun? Yes. You, you having a good time? Yes. White man? Okay, so I'm going to start with the director. You know the film we assigned to our students, I Am Not a Witch? Yes. Rungano Nioni, I would love her to direct this because she handles fable and the sort of intersection of the Occident and Orient really well. So she gives everything this sort of like strange, surreal feeling. So I think the bits where they talk about the chalk people and the bicycle would be done so mm, well. Yeah, I just like, Visually, yeah. it'd be cool as balls. And I was thinking of the perfect actor to play a Konkwu. Jimon Hunsu would be perfect for this, and he never gets leading roles. I know you know him. He was he was Maximus's friend in Gladiator. He's been in like loads of stuff. You know Jimon Hunsu. I've never seen Gladiator. I think that is the big thing though about the text that trying to convey the sense of like a different worldview and like to immerse you in it. So I think yeah, and also to, to render alien those things that seem maybe not natural to us, but that are familiar to us. Maybe we should discuss that now. Engages with Western culture in a kind of... Maybe we should talk about the Yates and stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I mean, yeah, because obviously this is this is a, a much more difficult book than I think you would expect to really wrestle with deeply in terms of ideology. Every time you think you have it sort of pinned down, you're like, but wait, what about this other thing? So it's it's a very slippery book mm. in that re- regard, and like I love Annalise that. is the cat. <laughs> But yeah, but the, the, it starts with the Yeats quotation, so... Hold up. Well, I mean, the title. And the t- Yeah, the title is from a... He uh, quotes Tennyson as well, he talks about nature, red and tooth and claw. Why name this after a Western poet's verse? Is, it, is, is that showing there's colonialism even here? Like, who is the intended audience? Is this a sort of reverse colonization of, I'm writing this for a Western audience to help, maybe not colonization is the right word, but to help show you yeah. what has happened and to show you that we are human. Or you could talk about it as like a subversive, subversive thing, right? You're, you're you know, deterritorializing the uh, the Western traditions. Let's also remember that Yeats was Irish and was yes. an Irish nationalist. So yes. maybe he's drawing an analogy between the Irish and Nigerian independence struggles. Or to to even, um, because I know especially, you know, in this period and, and in the 50s, in fact, well, frankly, all periods have this, people cherry-picking certain things from certain cultures 
to sort of like use as little artistic flavoring. Maybe he's doing that. Maybe it's his little like, oh, you want to use my culture's mask as part of your art gallery show as a little like commentary. Maybe I'll take a little. Yeah, two-way street. I suppose it's also like you could maybe say that the literature is the overarching hero of the piece you know the fables and stuff there's a lot of fables that we skipped over that i enjoyed the proverbs there's a parallel between proverbs and biblicalisms and then the yates you know maybe it's saying that you know art transcends these things you know you could you could ha- you could put that kind of slightly pie-eyed positive spin on things it's a little pollyannish but i love for, yeah, especially I for this text but the, but there is that just the the power of language i yeah. mean that that goes back to the thing we were talking about in the background stuff about what language do you even have this in and there, there are different power registers and different benefits from having it in either your sort of mother tongue or doing it in english mm. um i was thinking about there, there's a proverb that i'm surprised you didn't include because i thought this was really central to the text there is nothing to fear from someone who shouts so yes. they they find silence disturbing if you're using language language they understand it's a very proverb heavy talking heavy culture but when somebody's quiet that's freaky yeah because the, the white man on the bicycle didn't really say anything before he was murdered and that was the thing that they're like it's this creepy white guy he's riding this iron horse and he's not talking well, we don't understand him in any case i was thinking about the proportion of this book because most of the book happens before the colonizers even get there yeah so most of the book is them just sort of it's like slice of life stuff yeah i like a lot of stuff um you know it's it's establishing their own culture and struggles and psychology and whatever we get all the big rites of passage don't we weddings funerals births blah 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 yeah exactly um it really embeds us and then the white people come much later almost um in the last quarter of the book frankly and that happens rather slowly actually they talk about like okay it's just a couple of weirdos with this church in the woods and like a couple of the undesirables are there and you can see the sort of the escalation how fast this goes so that shows the pace of colonialism where they sort of slip in they get their hooks in and then all of a sudden oops and now there's the government sucks to be you by and i i really like that because it, it narratively matches it where all of a sudden oh what whoa, whoa whoa things are moving real mm, fast yeah the funny thing is that the clan don't even really understand the character of british rule because they're so much focused on like notables aren't they they're so much focused on like men with titles that when mr kiaga and mr brown and even like the reverend james smith turn up they're like well he's just a weirdo but the the point is is it's an institutional mm-hmm. power it doesn't really mag- uh, matter about individuals it's yes. a completely different order of power and they're like but mr kiaga's a nobody but the, the they're whole, not seeing the, the structural yeah, the power Anglican church and the british empire are a big thing yes yeah could we talk about i i hate to be this person but could we talk about gender in this yes please Conquo, the poster boy for toxic masculinity. This is about gender relations, but not really a kind of an analytical point. I was just interested by the kind of the weird feudal structure of the relationship that Oconquo and his wives each have their own separate huts, don't they? Oconquo's got like the top hut, the obi, the kind of the grand old man cave. Um, <laughs> the man cave. These days a man cave is a is a sign of the weakened man, isn't it? We've been we, the men, men's rights activists like myself... Oh, please been, don't joke about that. Don't been shunted into the man cave once we had the Obi, the top I'm, place in the compound. I'm sorry, you're so, but women don't get a man cave. We don't get I the just, chance know, to retreat. I just, this, this drives me nuts. Like, no, yeah, we yeah, have to right. run the house. The house is not a retreat. Exactly, yeah. Uh, the warm bath, talk at persons and all that. Oh, God, I just see lots of leather couches and <laughs> pinball machines for you. Yeah. I just like to... 
to kick back. Ocon Crow, he's got his hut. Each of his wives has her own hut. Each wife has to look after their particular kids. They also have their own separate farms and have to like sort of pay tribute to a conquo. They, like, they all give him their individual meals. Yeah. Like every meal he has three lunches, three breakfasts, three dinner, you know, like. It, it's like a sort of like, he's a multi-monogamist, isn't he? Rather than being a Polyamorous. Yeah. We never really see the wives interacting that much. Do we even get a scene where they like are chatting Does to it each pass other? the Bechdel test? No, and that's kind of the point. Uh, it probably does, actually. I think there's, Pro- a few, there's a few bits where they make excuses for each other and stuff. But it's the fact that the economic structure would even be based around that, that each wife would have to pay her own separate tribute to the husband, that it's like a sort of gender feudalism. The book doesn't really get into this, but I'd just be interested to know, sex wives, wise, sex wives. Sex wives. You have three wives. Is it, like, on a rotating schedule, or do you go with the favourite one? Is it, like, is because they never talk about the prestige of the wives about who gets him on what night. I don't know, that just seemed like... pretty tiring for the bloke. <laughs> <laughs> he's not 18, man. He's not Superman. Yeah, uh, yeah. But just, like, it just... There's a whole level of complication they never get into. What happens when they're on their periods? What happens when they have kids? What happens when... Like, there, there's a lot of stuff that is not being accounted for. Yeah, is he tired one day? And does that... Is that a lack of prestige on the woman's part? Like, I just feel like there are logistics there that are sort of maybe purposefully taken for granted because the women almost deliberately aren't given that much of a look in no yeah well i suppose the point is that all of the customs of the culture are treated completely naturally and so you wouldn't have to explain this stuff what about just things falling apart what falls apart is it purely because of the british empire that things fall apart or is it implied that the system itself has its yeah i was i was wondering about that because it already seems doomed to fail i mean just the conquer personally seems but his i mean he had you know his his beloved daughter is always seemingly on the verge of death you know his his gun goes off they're you know they talk about the vagaries of certain harvests and things like that it feels like everything is sort of always teetering on a knife's edge so even if you're lucky enough or hardworking enough to build up this life from nothing it's always like one bad day away from it all going away yeah Okay, um, so here's some advice, which yeah, I yeah. just decided to... Tell me, up, tell, me, tell me what the advice is, please. So my advice is to pay attention to naming conventions in books. We have a few bits where some people are given more names than others, and Nwoye changes his name halfway through the books. Names always equate power, so people who are able to sort of rename people or like who is who is given a name and who isn't, that's really important. These are these are important power dynamics, not just in literature, but in life. So pay attention to them. Um, you've got a clue. I read it. It's a good clue. Oh, you've actually said this. Just ignore me. Read the clue. I thought, oh, no, I want to get your notes, friend. You were geared up to critique I had, me. It wasn't a criticism. I just didn't realize you would reference the cat thing. But you have. Okay. Press on, I think. Our clue to the next episode. It's another text written in the 1950s. Set someplace hot about a lot of daddy issues and masculinity problems. Big daddy issues. With loads of children being insulted. And there's another character in this called the cat. Something the cat. So please write into our email or tweet us. Subscribe wherever you listen. What are you dummies going to do? Read books on your own? I don't think so. Do it. Thank you. Any little afterwards or is it over? I don't know. You got anything to say? No. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is 
The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and Cover Art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.